Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such an incredibly important passage and we need you to teach us not just what it means, Lord, but what it means for us today. God, we recognize that we are in a spiritual war, Lord, and that we need uh, defense, Lord. We need the proper weaponry. We need to know how to face the temptations of the enemy and we need desperately to learn how to overcome Lord, there may be people here today who feel the, the, the regret, the shame of having not overcome temptation this week. Lord, we pray that you would cover them. Lord, we pray that they would sense your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness, your compassion. But Lord, I pray that you would also train us up for battle. Lord, train us up for this spiritual war that your people may be victorious and experience victory over those things that make us feel like failures. Lord, I'm reminded even more so this week as, as many people, as a, as a nation, um, we're celebrating the, the life and the work of Martin Luther King Jr. We are reminded that it is not flesh and blood that we are at war with. Lord, but powers and principalities and sin that not only turns us against God, but turns us against one another. We will find any excuse to turn against one another. And so, Lord, would, would we do that spiritual war in this place as brothers and sisters? Would we be reconciled in all ways, God, and glorifying our Father in heaven? So, Lord, teach us today. Teach us today from your word, by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there was a Chinese military general named Sun Tzu who wrote a book you've probably heard of called The Art of War. And one of the most famous quotes from The Art of War is, Know thy enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. Know your enemy and know yourself. And in a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. This 
uh, attempt to know your enemy and know yourself, I think, plays out frequently in, uh, in sports when professional athletes will spend hours and hours and hours watching film of the opposing team. Um, I was watching the, uh, the, the wild card game last night between the Jaguars and the Chargers. I turned it on and I said, there is not two teams I care least about in the NFL than the Chargers or the Jaguars. But I was fascinated as, uh, as Samuel Jr. picked off three passes in the, first court, in the first half. And I was like, this dude's been watching some tape. He's been memorizing the Jaguars' tape. He knows exactly what they're going to do. He has got this down. And then I turned it off at the half. And those of you who uh, are aware of what happened, um, the Jaguars knew some tape too. Uh, they, they, they came back and, and, and won miraculously. Uh, it was pretty incredible. Anyway, um, athletes will watch tape of the team that they are preparing to play to know their vulnerabilities, to understand their weaknesses so they can guard against their strengths and they can attack their weaknesses. But they also watch tape of their own plays, their own games, so that they can be aware of their own vulnerabilities and so they can understand where, uh, uh, how to limit their weaknesses. And so since Genesis 3, humanity has been in a spiritual battle. And so the more we know our enemy, his mission and his tactics, and the more we know about ourselves, our vulnerability and our weaponry, the more prepared we will be to overcome temptation. Now, throughout our series in Genesis, it's been our intention to talk about all of the good things in the world and where it came from. And so thus far, we've been addressing the creation ideals that God makes this world and he makes it all good and he fills it with beauty and abundance and he creates his people and he places them in this garden of delights. We even know that God is willing to identify where things are not good. If you remember from last week, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And so he provides for the man by making a woman, by giving him his wife and, 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 and creating community. And so the man and woman are in the garden and they know that God is good, that he's invited them to enjoy all of this, and that God is able to identify where things are not good and provide for them. And so the man and woman are supposed to trust that God sees and knows the good and will provide the good. And so they're supposed to trust him for that. And in the middle of the garden, there is this tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to get more into the tree in future weeks. But this tree represents the ability for the man and woman to discern what is good and what is evil for themselves. Instead of trusting God to see and know and provide the good, the tree represents the opportunity to take that away from God and to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And so ultimately what the tree represents is an opportunity for autonomy. It's not just a piece of fruit. The man and woman by eating the fruit are in all out rebellion against God, his rule over their lives, and they are setting themselves up 
as the ones who are the masters of their own destiny. And so what we have in Genesis chapter 3 is the beginning of the origins of evil in the world. It's not just Genesis chapter 3. We'll see it throughout Genesis chapter 3 through 11. It's just this downward spiral of tragedy after tragedy after tragedy as human beings try to shirk God's authority and rule themselves discerning for themselves what is good and what is evil and finding themselves in situations where what is good they call evil and what is evil they call good. So it's backwards. The world is a messed up place because of what begins to unravel in Genesis chapter 3. And so our text begins with the entrance of this serpent, the entrance of the enemy. And so we need to know our enemy. First, who is he? Okay, now some will say that the serpent in the garden is Satan, the leader of the rebellion against God and against God's purposes and against God's people. Other people don't like to refer to the serpent as Satan because interestingly enough, the Old Testament never calls him Satan. There are lots of beings in the Old Testament that are called Satan, and the serpent is not one of them. The word Satan, and in Hebrew is Satan, it's actually one of the only English words that we use today that comes from the Hebrew language. The word Satan just means adversary, okay, or accuser, slanderer, someone that opposes Somebody. And there are many adversaries in the Old Testament, but they are not always supernatural evil beings. For example, David, King David, the man after God's own heart, is called a Satan. He is an adversary to the Philistines. Okay? Um, Solomon has. Uh, a couple of Satans. He has a couple of adversaries. The kings of Edom and Syria are referred to as Satans to Solomon. They are adversaries. They are opponents to him. Certainly there is the Satan in Job chapter 1 who stands before God and accuses Job of only being faithful to God because God blesses him. Um, a similar character, whether it's the same one or not, shows up in Zechariah chapter 3 and brings accusations against the high priest, Jonathan. And so there's this spiritual being that is, is bringing accusations against God's people. But it's not always a supernatural evil being. For instance, the angel of the Lord is referred to as a Satan in numbers when he opposes the prophet for hire, Balaam. He stands in the way opposing Balaam because Balaam is on his way to go curse God's people for money. And so the angel of the Lord is referred to as an adversary, as an opponent, as a Satan. And so with lots of these references to a lowercase s, not a proper name, but more of a title, Satan, nowhere in the Old Testament, is the serpent referred to as Satan. But that doesn't mean that that's not who he is. 
Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Many people will look at this and say, open and shut case. Ancient serpent, the ancientest of serpents is the serpent in the garden who deceives God's people. And so here, uh, uh, Revelation refers to him as Satan. Open, open and shut case. It's really more of an illusion than anything, but it is still helpful um, because I do think Genesis chapter three is in the back of John's mind as he's seeing these visions and describing them. And so this word Satan has become over time a proper name to uh, identify um, not just evil personified, but to identify the leader of the spiritual rebellion against God, who in the end will be cast into the lake of fire and incinerated. And so uh, uh, what we have is in Genesis chapter three, we have the archetype. This is the original opponent to God's purposes and God's people. All other opposition that would come through uh, human entities, spiritual entities, anything that would come and oppose the work of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God are just following this dude's footsteps um, or following his slitherings, whatever you want to call that. They're following this being. And so it is entirely appropriate to refer to him with the proper name Satan because he is the archetypal adversary. And so as we look at this text, we're not just looking at what one figure in scripture does. We are looking at what all of God's adversaries do, how all of them function and how all of them can be defeated. So we may absolutely refer to this character as Satan because he is the chief. He is the first. But there's another issue going on here. Um, the text makes no statement that would lead us to believe that this serpent is anything other than a beast of the field created by God. He's not called an angel or a fallen angel or some other spiritual being. He's called a snake. He's called a serpent. And so there's a variety of ways people have tried to explain this. Either Satan possessed the serpent. It's one idea. Maybe uh, Satan disguised himself as a serpent. As we know from scripture, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, maybe he disguised himself as a serpent. Another idea is that Eve was really hearing a voice in her head, but she saw the serpent. And so she assumed it was the serpent that was speaking to her. Either way, what we need to see is that there is a satanic influence behind what is happening with the serpent. Now, 
Uh, the most important thing, the thing that I want us to spend our time on is not what we call this enemy. It's not where he came from. But what I want us to consider today are his tactics. Because the way he deceives Adam and Eve is the same way he sets out to deceive us. What we call him is not as important as how we understand his strategy. So what is his strategy? First, he questions God's word. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, before this text, God places the man in the garden. He commands him saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's pretty straightforward. God says, hey, absolutely everything. I made everything for you. All of the fruit. Look at all the trees. All of it is for you. You'll eat all of that. But this tree right here, don't eat of that. Because if you do, you will surely die. And then the serpent comes to the woman and asks, did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And so she refutes him. She goes, no, we can eat from the the fruit of the trees, but you shall not eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. She misquotes God. Now, we can't be too harsh on Eve because this is Adam's fault. Okay, Eve was not around for the command. See, God commanded the man before Eve was made. It was his responsibility to teach her and to lead her in God's word. And he fails at it. And I don't know why he fails at it. We're not given the story but here's how I understand it. Look, Eve, or actually, she didn't have a name at this point. This is how quickly this happens. It's just woman. Uh, Look, woman, all of this fruit, you can eat that, but don't eat this one, okay? Why? Well, you'll, you'll die. What does it mean to die? rolling his eyes. It means you stop living. Why will we die? I I don't know, Eve. He just said, don't eat it or you'll die. You know what? Don't even touch it. Okay. Just keep away from the tree or you'll die. I would have asked why. That's how I understand it. Anyway, just trying to figure out how so quickly this dude can blow it. Right? Just just she, she, she gets it wrong. Either way, the serpent jumps at the opportunity and just all out contradicts God's word. He says, you will not surely die. Now, the same way that the enemy deceives Adam and Eve, he deceives us today in the voice of culture and sometimes in the voices of those who even profess to be believers. He causes us to question and reject God's word. Did God really say blank? I I know what you think the Bible says, but you know the Bible was just corrupted by humans, right? That story right there, God didn't say that. God God would not have said this this way, or this is my 
personal favorite, and by favorite, I mean lie from the pit of hell. That doesn't mean what it says. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that. Did God really say? And so one of the best ways that we need to arm ourselves, one of the best ways we can arm ourselves with truth to combat temptation is to know God's word. To know the word of God, to hide it in our hearts, to be ready to call out the lies when we see it. This is ultimately how Jesus defeats temptation when he is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He quotes scripture. Ephesians chapter 6 also refers to the word of God as the sword of the spirit. It is our weapon in spiritual battle. So that when someone comes along and says, did God really say, yes, he did. Let me take you to chapter and verse. Yes, he did say that. Now there's a a, a very uh, popular thing in culture today, in Christian culture, to deconstruct our faith, which encourages us to ask the question, is this really true? What I've been taught, what I experienced in church, the, my, my, uh, my theological traditions, is this really true? And there is a way to deconstruct like Jesus, and there is a way to deconstruct like the serpent. The serpent says, did God really say, and his entire purpose is to undermine God's credibility? Did God really say, you can't believe that? Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he comes to the people and he says, you have heard that it was said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, when he brings into question human interpretation of the word, does not undermine God's credibility. He upholds God's credibility. So it is absolutely good to ask questions of God's word. What does this mean? How does this apply? How has the church understood this throughout culture? How has it been taught to me? All of these things, we can ask questions of the text. But when we do, are we upholding God's credibility or are we undermining God's credibility? I would venture to say that in most popular forums in universities, even Christian universities, and on social media, the uh, result is an undermining of God's credibility in his word. Not telling you to have blind faith or to not ask questions. I am telling you that in your questioning, please uphold God's credibility so that you don't deconstruct like the serpent but that you build, you stand on the foundation that God's word has built for you in Christ. And so Eve is unprepared in this and we cannot make the same mistake because if he can cause us to question God's word and question God's credibility, the next thing he does is cause us to question God's character. And that's exactly what he does. He says, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, modern translation, God is holding out on you. 
did God really say not to eat that? No, you won't surely die. God just doesn't want you to eat it. He's holding out on you. He's keeping you from something. Now, this was a very popular understanding of uh, God or the gods in ancient pagan cultures. See, the people wanted to be like the gods, but not in their moral character. The gods were just as wicked and corrupt as the humans were in all of these pagan uh, religions. They wanted their power. They wanted their immortality. That's what the humans wanted. That's what the Gilgamesh epic is all about. All these ancient stories. It's about humans trying to achieve more, uh, trying to achieve immortality. And the gods are always trying to thwart the humans from uh, obtaining what they consider to be their divine prerogatives. They're, say, they, they're throwing in all kinds of ways to mislead them so that the people never actually take hold of what they see as belonging to the gods. And so the reason this is interesting is because the surrounding cultures in Israel would have heard this story and they would have been naturally inclined to believe the serpent. Yeah, this is what gods do. They, they, they don't want humans to be like them. See, and so there's already built into culture this questioning the character of God. They would have questioned the benevolence of the God who commanded them not to eat it. And so the serpent is simply saying, this could be yours. All that this offers could be yours, but God doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't want you to be like him. He would rather you be his slave than be his equal. And so he questions God's character. And again, we see this in the world today. It's not just, does the Bible really say this? The Bible doesn't say that. God God didn't say that. That's a human interpretation. That's human corruption evidenced in scripture. But we also see God's character under attack. God wouldn't be a loving God if he judged sin. We know that God's a God of love. And so love means affirming every aspect of who you are and every desire that you have. And so God could not be a God of love if this were true. God wants you to be happy. He wouldn't be good if he stood in the way of your happiness. Sound familiar? We hear these things all the time. We tell ourselves these things all the time. Be mindful of the way the culture talks about God. It sounds an awfully lot like the serpent. God is holding out on you. That's because it's the same old tactics, questioning God's word, questioning God's character. And then finally, the serpent presents an alternate narrative. He says, God knows your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Realize your full potential. God is holding you back. Faith is holding you back. The church is holding you back. The Bible is holding you back. You could be so much more than you are. Be what you were made to be. You were born this way. This is who you really are. Become what you were made for an alternate narrative. Oh, I, I, I don't want to listen to God. I, God is a bad guy if he asks me to abstain from these things because I just need to follow my heart. This is what I desire and my heart can't possibly lead me astray, right? Wrong. Wrong. 
The saddest thing about this story is that it assumes that, is that the humans do not trust that they were already like God. They were made in the image of God. They were made in his likeness. They were more like God in ways that they could possibly imagine. But in their attempts to become like him, more like him, they forfeit their chance to see the image of God in them be fully realized. They lose their innocence. They lose their intimacy with God. They lose their home. Eventually, they will lose their lives. These are the same tactics of temptation that the enemy throws at us today, and it's right in front of our face. So don't be deceived, church. Know your enemy. He'll undermine God's word. He will slander God's character. He'll present you with an alternate narrative that affirms the desires that you have. But what happens here in Genesis 3 and what happens in our own lives is not all the serpent's fault. Adam and Eve are participants in their own rebellion. And this means that combating deception requires that we know ourselves. Know your enemy, know yourself. There's a story of a man walking down a street, passing by a beautiful cathedral. And on the steps of the cathedral, he sees Satan just ugly crying on the steps, weeping on the steps. And the man says, Satan, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he says, that church is full of people blaming me for things I never did. So we love to blame the devil for our improprieties. Satan made me do it, right? I was tempted. Spiritual warfare. It's like the trump card. I can do whatever I want as long as I claim spiritual warfare. I didn't want to do it, but the devil made me do it. I was spiritually attacked, so I couldn't help it. But here's the truth of the matter. You can't be tempted with anything you don't already want. We cannot be tempted with anything that we don't already want. Imagine Satan coming along and be like, you know, it'd be great. Let me hit you in the head with this hammer. Or like poke you with this hot poker, right? This pitchfork that I've got, right? Like, wouldn't that be great? And it's like irresistible temptation. How can I say no? I'm spiritually attacked. No, you don't want it. That's easy to say no to. Satan can't make you do anything that you don't already want to do. Now, temptation may feel like it comes out of left field, but in order for it to be successful, it has to entice us with something that we want to receive. Eve wanted what the tree could give her. It says that she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eye, that it was desirable to make one wise. Satan doesn't come to her with an opportunity she doesn't want. The, 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 the goodness or the desirability of this thing was right in front of her. He just dangles what we want in front of our face and encourages us to take it by our own volition. Now, not every person is tempted with the same things because our, our desires are different. So maybe you don't crave sweets. Maybe you're like me. I don't, I don't crave sweets, but I will crush a bag of potato chips in an instant, right? Maybe you've got different cravings. Same goes for our temptations. Our rebellious desires take different forms as well. 
but it'll be difficult to tempt you with something that you don't want, something that you don't desire. And so nobody is to blame for our sin but ourselves. Satan is going to be punished for his rebellion against God. But the humans are also responsible for their own actions in Genesis 3, and we're responsible for our own actions as well. So what is it that the humans want? First um, John gives us some categories of these temptations, that she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. First John defines this as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, we want all that we can consume, we want all that we can see, and we want all that we can be. This is human nature. Whatever we can get our hands on, whatever we can consume, whatever we can see, whatever is bigger and better, and we want to be all that we can be. We want to be the the, the best version of ourselves and we'll take shortcuts to get there. That's what we want. And so we don't need Satan's help to sin. We're perfectly capable of shipwrecking our own lives based on our own desires. All he needs to do is just wave it in front of our faces. So then how do we overcome temptation? When it comes from the outside and from within. See, spiritual warfare is not all the devil. It comes from culture. It comes from the world. It does come from supernatural evil, but it also comes from within our very own brokenness and our uh, illicit desires. So how do we stand firm when our hearts are so prone to wander? First, scripture and prayer, so that you'll be able to discern God's voice from the garbage that the world teaches. Constantly pouring into us the word of God and communing with him in prayer, training ourselves to hear his voice and to discern his truth. Second is to be honest about your temptations and your experiences, your sins. To just be honest with yourself, with God, with accountability around you and say, hey, these are my vulnerable areas. I've seen enough tape to know that I usually blow it when these circumstances start aligning themselves. To know your own hearts, to know your vulnerability and to invite other believers through community to stand guard, to stand watch. It's like uh, the, the watching the those like the Spartan movies, right? Where they have the shield and they guard themselves and the person next to them. You remember seeing uh, like 300 or, or any of those movies where the shield is responsible for protecting the individual and the one next to them. And it creates like this scale that protects this, creates the shield around God's people. When we get together in community, we guard not only ourselves, we guard one another. We watch out for each other's blind spots. And we say, hey, remember that thing that you said you were vulnerable to? I see it coming. Let me stand guard. Let me pray for you. Let me protect you. Okay, we need community. Another shameless plug, home groups. Moving on. Third, stop looking for teachers that will tell you what you want to hear so you can justify what you want to do. 
Stop looking for people who will tell you the thing that you want to hear so that you can do the thing that you want to do all along. I don't care what initials are after their name. If they're calling into question God's word, calling into question God's character, and presenting with you, presenting to you an alternate narrative that scripture does not communicate, run, run, run. They don't have your best interest in mind. They don't have God's glory in mind. Stop looking for teachers who will tell you that what you want to do, that scripture says you should not do, stop looking for people to tell you it's okay. It's not okay. But most importantly, no amount of knowing our enemy or knowing ourselves will save us. Only Jesus can save us from temptation can save us from sin, and can save us from the penalty of sin. And so the only way to combat your own desires and to combat the temptations of the enemy is to delight in Jesus. We spend so much effort trying to eliminate our sinful desires, but it's like me telling you not to think about the color blue. Everyone's thinking about blue now. It's difficult to to eliminate our desires. The only way to combat our desires is by introducing a greater desire. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection. He said the root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior grace, a more compelling joy. If you want to desire sin less, it's not going to come by you trying to take those desires out of your heart. It's going to come by pouring the goodness and the beauty and the glory and the desirability of Jesus into your heart. John Piper explains it like this. Imagine you have at your disposal a a, a modern, fully equipped scientific laboratory, and you are given the task to take all of the air out of a glass beaker. You can come up with all kinds of mechanisms that will vacuum pump that beaker uh, to where it's, 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 it's empty of all of its air and go through great lengths trying to suck the air out of that beaker. Or you can fill it with water. By filling the beaker with water, the air is displaced. It is expelled from the beaker. You can spend a lifetime trying to get yourself to stop desiring the things that you desire, or you can desire Jesus. And he will, in time, displace those desires. The shiny things of this world will grow more and more dim and pale and undesirable the more we see the beauty and the value and the glory of our Savior. What Adam and Eve needed was not just a better grasp of God's word. They didn't need more willpower. What they needed was to recognize that the greatest thing in the world that God had made was God himself. We need to realize not 
just, you know, our salvation is not uh, how much we read the Bible or how much we know about the Bible. Our salvation is not uh, uh, even in, in how uh, well we stand faring against the temptations of the enemy. What we need is not to try harder. What we need is not to be better. What we need is not a better internet filter. What we need, pure and simple, is a better savior than the world can provide. Jesus can provide you a better identity than the serpent can. Jesus can provide you with what is better for you than sin can. He is the word of God. And so when we read the word of God, Jesus displaces those desires in our hearts. He is where we look to see the character of God. When the world says that God cannot be a God of love who demands such holiness for us or we're condemned to hell. Yes, he can be a good God and a loving God. Look at Jesus who died on the cross so the condemnation would fall on himself and not on us. He calls us to moral excellence. He calls us to purity. He calls us to pick up our cross, deny ourselves the desires that we have and follow him. And it is good because the one who calls us to live this way is the one who laid his own life down so that we could have the life that he deserved. The reason that God is good is seen in the cross of Christ. And the reason that God's goodness and his holiness and his justice do not contradict is because the cross of Christ. Yes, your sin is that bad, but yes, God's love is greater than you imagine. Look to the cross of Jesus. On the cross, our sin is forgiven. Past, present, and future. Sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. He silences the lies. He silences the temptations. He silences the accusations. Listen, many of us in this place right now may be well aware of all of the ways that we have failed to resist temptation this week, this month, this morning, whatever it is. And right now you may be tempted to see, look at yourself and say, I should have done this better. I should have been more faithful. I should have just like mustered some more strength, some more willpower. And you're sitting there in the accusations and the shame of the enemy. And what I want you to hear is that the cross of Jesus Christ silences those accusations. You can, with faith in Jesus, look at those accusations, the way that the enemy would want to come to you and say, you did this thing. You don't deserve Jesus. And say, you know what, Satan, you're right. But he gives himself to me by his grace, not on my merits, but because he loves me, he still invites me into his salvation, into his kingdom, into his grace. He invites me to partake of his spirit. He invites me into what I never deserved for myself, We can embrace the accusations and recognize that even though it's true, Satan lies because he's leaving Jesus out of the equation. And so if you're here and you're struggling with the shame and you're struggling with with failure, hear this, trust in Jesus 
and your shame is covered. Your sin is forgiven. And you are invited to become something so much greater than you are. Something so much greater than you could accomplish by your own efforts. Something so much greater than the world can tell you to become. Because through faith in Christ, we can become like Jesus. The one who crushes the serpent under his feet and promises to make the world new again and promises to make you new again. Your salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so whether you are fearful of temptations in your future or you are ashamed of the sin in your past, because of Jesus, they are real temptations. It is real sin. There is real consequence. But in the economy of God, it is as though they never were. Washed clean, cast away from you as far as the east is from the west. Never to have a claim on you again. And so as we fight this spiritual war, know that it's already over. The war has already been won. Christ has been victorious. And what's left for us to do is to follow him in victory. You can experience victory over sin. You can experience victory over temptation. But it's going to come by following Jesus and delighting in him. And he will cleanse your hearts of the sinful desires and remove from the hands of the enemy his ability to tempt you because you know Jesus is better. Church, do you believe that Jesus is better than the thing that you want? Let Jesus know that you believe that he is better. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that you are greater than what our desires can achieve for ourselves. You are greater than what this world can give us. Jesus, you are salvation. You are the glory of God, Lord. You are our Savior. And so, Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters who are wrestling in this space with with temptation, with condemnation. Your word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know that the enemy wants to tell, tell us in this room that that doesn't apply to us, but it's a lie. The enemy is whispering in someone's ear right now, you're not in Christ Jesus. I know you think you are, but if you were, you wouldn't have done this thing again and again and again. If that's you, you just need to know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. That the enemy wants you to be condemned in your sin. 
But Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Word of God says that if you believe, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is your king, and that he has the right to govern your life as he sees fit, you give him your allegiance, and you believe that he is not in a tomb, that he is alive, he is risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out his spirit on the church, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you're saved. And so Romans 8.1 applies to you. No matter what the devil or anyone else says to you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. You are under his grace. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of God. Set free the power of the enemy and set free to follow the king. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts up to worship for what you've done, for who you are. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.